Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Today on the podcast, I speak with Dr. Casey Means. Casey received her MD from the Stanford School of Medicine and is the co-founder and chief medical officer of the metabolic health company, Levels. Now, among other products and services, Levels produces a publicly available continuous glucose monitor. Full disclosure, I wear one of these monitors, and to be clear, I have no affiliation with the company. Now, CGM can be self-applied to your tricep, and it links with an app on your phone such that you can monitor your blood sugar levels hour to hour and day to day. Now, why are glucose levels so important to your health? Well, that's the primary subject of today's episode. Now, continuous glucose monitors are part of a wave of personalized devices that empower individuals to take more control over their own health care. The dashboard on your car provides a simple and potent analogy. At any time, the dashboard keeps you abreast of tire or oil pressure, engine coolant temperature, and gas reserves. Well, CGMs give you the same window into the key metrics that determine your health under your hood, if you will. Now, this topic is so important because 88% of American adults have metabolic dysfunction, a state that is almost entirely preventable and underlies the leading causes of death in the United States, including heart disease, cancer, diabetes, stroke, and Alzheimer's. A metabolic syndrome, which includes chronic high glucose levels, is the elephant in the room of modern American healthcare, leading to unprecedented morbidity and trillions of dollars in direct costs. Now, Casey has committed herself to tackling this epidemic head on through her advocacy of healthy food and lifestyle choices, as well as technology that provides access to actionable personal health data that gives people agency over their own health. Now, this conversation includes a deep excavation of metabolism, how your body produces energy, 
and we talk about how to optimize this system and how certain environmental and lifestyle inputs can derail it. I think you will find it fascinating and helpful. So without further delay, I present to you Dr. Casey Means. Okay, Dr. Casey Means, welcome to the Commune Podcast. Great to be with you. I'm so thrilled we can connect and have this conversation. Yeah, me too. So let's jump in. So as you well know, and as you've talked about, the statistics and the numbers around chronic disease, including heart disease, diabetes, cancer, Alzheimer's, which is what many people call type 3 diabetes now, are just staggering. And this is particularly true uh, in countries that have adopted our famous uh, export to the standard American diet and uh, some of our other detrimental lifestyle habits that include incessant stress and fear, um, poor sleep, and some of our sedentary indoor uh, existence. Um, but you are on a mission um, to reverse this epidemic uh, of chronic diseases because many of them are preventable. And, uh, and one of the ways you're doing that is by empowering individuals, giving people agency with tools and with information so that people can really take control over their own health. Um, so you're the chief medical officer and co-founder of a metabolic health company called Levels. And Levels does many things. I love the blog, by the way. It's just fantastic. It's my go-to place for a lot of information. But on a product basis, you guys produce a continuous glucose monitor, and we can get into exactly what that is. But essentially, it allows people to observe and what I think of as supervise <laughs> their blood sugar levels. And you also offer, I believe, an at-home metabolic health panel that provides uh, folks with key biomarkers that I know I'm not getting from my primary care physician, and a lot of people don't. So... As a starting place, because there's so much to, to unpack, maybe you can just set the table by describing what metabolic health is mm. and, and its relationship to blood glucose levels. Mm. Yes. I mean, so much great information, even there in that question, in that lead up, um, you know, what, what you, one thing you mentioned is just the magnitude of this chronic disease epidemic that we're facing today. And what's so incredible about this epidemic of all these chronic diseases, chronic disease, meaning these long-term diseases that are largely rooted in diet and lifestyle, often preventable, is that the majority of these diseases that are affecting Americans are very much interrelated. They're very connected and they're connected by metabolic dysfunction. And Unfortunately, the way we conventionally view diseases, different diseases in our, in our system is we think of them as isolated silos, that these ones you mentioned, that Alzheimer's dementia is different than diabetes, is different than obesity, is different than depression, is different than infertility, you know, is different than cancer, is different than gout. We, we think, you know, mm -hmm. a doctor would look at those and say, oh yeah, this goes to one specialty, this goes to the other, and we'll have a different medication for, for every single one. But the the interesting thing and the beautiful opportunity actually is that what we're learning now is that 
these diseases are all in the same network. And the, the link that's connecting them is metabolic dysfunction. And metabolic dysfunction, um, one of the ways that you can see that and one of the manifestations of that is erratic dysfunctional blood sugar control. So what is metabolic health? So metabolic health is talking about the way we produce energy in the body. And we have somewhere around, it's of course impossible to know exactly, but somewhere around 37 trillion cells in the human body. A lot of cells. (laughs) And every single one of them is this like incredible little factory with just a whole universe going on inside of them. And for every single function to happen within that cell, essentially it needs energy to power these little machines. And that energy comes from our metabolism. So metabolic health is when you can produce energy properly in the body. And that is so fundamental to all aspects of health, to to so many symptoms and diseases that we're having today. Because if you think about it, if a certain cell type isn't getting energy properly, that group of cells is not going to work well. And therefore you're going to have, so cellular dysfunction leads to tissue dysfunction, tissue dysfunction leads to organ dysfunction, organ dysfunction leads to symptoms and disease. And wherever that energy problem is happening in the body, it can look like anything, which is why metabolic dysfunction can be this masquerader of all these different symptoms, because it's dealing with a core fundamental pathway related to all cells. And so that's, I think, a really key point for people to understand is that this isn't like some downstream disease situation. This is a core fundamental pathway for everything to work. And based on different people, if these processes are problematic, it can look like many, many different things. It's a, if it's happening in the blood vessels of the penis, it looks like erectile dysfunction. If it's happening in the blood vessels of the retina, it looks like preventable blindness. If it's happening in you know, the heart, it could look like a heart attack in the brain, Alzheimer's, dementia, depression, chronic pain, it it really can look like so many things. So what we need to focus on is how do we produce energy properly in the body and why do we have an epidemic right now, not of all these isolated diseases, but with a problem in how the American body is making, processing and storing energy. And that's the fundamental question. That is the elephant in the room of modern, modern American healthcare that we have to solve if we're going to make any progress in reducing our $4 trillion healthcare costs, if we're going to make any progress in improving the thriving um, happiness and productivity of Americans, if we're going to deal with the obesity epidemic, and if we're going to reduce the chronic disease epidemic, and of course, if we're going to truly get on top of COVID and any future pandemic that we deal with, since of course we've learned over the past two years that this problem with energy production in the body, metabolic dysfunction is a key driver of morbidity and mortality in COVID. So it is really um, critical. And getting to your glucose question. So one of the ways that the body makes energy is it takes in these substrates like glucose or fat. Those are the two main ones, converts them within the cell to a chemical currency of energy called ATP. And so that conversion process of these substrates through the mitochondria in in the cell to a currency that we can use, you know, coins that can go into the, into the machine. Um, that process, um, of course involves glucose can also involve fat. And what's happening right now is our standard American diet and other very modern, very recent 
monumental changes in the exposures that our bodies have. So standard American diet, which I would summarize as chronic processed overnutrition, too much energetic substrate, coupled with a lot of the other things like sedentary behavior, poor sleep, chronic low-grade stress, what these things translate to in the body is hijacking that cellular mitochondrial process of converting glucose and fat to ATP. We are literally gumming up that system and things cannot flow through. And something I find really fascinating about the energy conversation is that we actually now have access to too much energy substrate, the, the, the part that starts that process towards ATP. There's too much. So you could say, oh, well, we have too much energy, so why can't we just make more energy? But one thing, one way I think about it in my mind is that if you had like a factory that was making something like, I don't know, cheese, who knows, and you all of a sudden got delivered five times as much of the raw ingredients, like milk or whatever, it's like all being delivered on the same day. Well, you know, the factory can't take that all in. They can't store it. They can't process it. It's going to go bad. The factory workers are going to be like, this is way too much. We don't know what to do. We can't do our jobs. And you end up making much less of the actual product because it's chaos. It's, it's overwhelm. It's mayhem. And that's exactly what's going on inside our bodies. We are just loading it with glucose, saturated fat, omega-6 oils, all this stuff. And these poor cells do not know what to do. And this is such a recent phenomenon. We're talking like 50 to 100 years that we've been, this, this beautiful machine of the body isn't exposed to these, these external stressors that it cannot handle. And what we're seeing in our healthcare today is the body saying, I can't, no more, and it's breaking down. And so our role as individuals is to understand that and to make different choices to alleviate that strain and that stress on the body that's leading to monumental fundamental dysfunction. And the beautiful thing is it's really not that hard, uh, but you have to understand some of these principles and you have to know where you're at and you have to know what's negatively affecting you. And it would be so easy for someone to say, oh my God, we've, we've been around for behavioral modern humans have been around for you know 40,000 years. Humans in general have been around like a lot longer. Why do we need to like track or monitor, or understand this now? We've kind of been doing fine. But the issue is that we are facing an uphill battle like never before. The cards are so monumentally stacked against us right now with just what is normalized in terms of culture and is so new. Um, the food, the stress, the digital world, the sleep deprivation, the sedentary behavior. And so in the face of brand new challenges, and unfortunately, coupled with a healthcare system that, that does not look at disease in this root cause way that really is looking at success criteria as managing symptoms, but not creating health in the face of that. And third, in the face of a, unfortunately, a government, which does lots of things right, but one thing it does fundamentally wrong is subsidize the production of the most disease-promoting foods in an effort to support American agriculture, which is a noble effort, but unfortunately is the wrong decision for health. So we have cheap food, we have doctors who are not treating root causes, and we have monumental challenges that our bodies are facing. And therefore, it is up to us as individuals to get on top of this. And we can. It's not that hard. And it can radically change your health if you get on top of metabolism, how to produce energy properly in your body, 
and of course, therefore, how to get your glucose levels um, under better control. Casey, crushing it. You speak so powerfully and eloquently about so many different issues there um, and really, uh, in some ways, make human mechanism, which can be overwhelming for people who didn't go to med school, you make it so um, palatable and understandable. So thank you so much. Because you know, when people think about metabolism, that word often gets thrown around. Oh, well, that person has a good metabolism or I have a bad metabolism. And what does that actually mean? Well, I think you just did a great summary there as what is our ability to produce energy efficiently within the body. So let's just talk about that process for a little bit a little bit longer, you can think about it as cellular respiration or, or however you want to think about it, but essentially we eat food, it gets broken down by enzymes and acids in our stomach, it moves into our small intestine and gets absorbed. Um, this is very general right now, not everything gets absorbed, but, um, but uh, let's say carbohydrates in this particular case get absorbed, the pancreas uh, secretes insulin, which is a peptide um, that picks up um, uh, glucose uh, in the bloodstream and ushers it, um, in the best case scenario, into the cell, as you described, for uh, energy production in our mitochondria or the production of adenosine triphosphate. So great. When that's all working um, well, we're, are, we are working well, but as you say, we have a sort of a supply chain problem, but the opposite one that we're having at our, <laughs> at our ports, we have too many ships actually now coming into the harbor through overnutrition. And for a variety of different reasons, we, what we can talk about, which is insulin resistance um, or our pancreas not producing enough insulin, but we're ending up with too much glucose in our bloodstream or hyperglycemia. And um, so maybe pull that thread a little bit. What happens when we have excess glucose in our bloodstream and what are some of the downstream or knock-on impacts of that? So I think two important things here. One being sort of the initial question, which is like digging a little bit deeper into why why this happens, why does the glucose rise and the insulin story a little bit, and then two, what is the biologic result of glucose being being high? So, yeah. in terms of that first question, you alluded to this a bit, which is that for glucose to be taken, glucose is blood sugar, of course, and and for that to be taken out of the bloodstream into the cells to be processed or stored, it requires in most cell types, insulin, which is like a lock and key that when when glucose comes into the bloodstream and, and rises, the pancreas releases this hormone insulin, which then binds to the cell receptor and allows for the glucose to, to come in. When insulin binds to the cell membrane, allows the glucose to come into the cell, um, the glucose then is going to be transported to the mitochondria. And this is the key thing. Anything that damages the function of the mitochondria is going to essentially create a backup of glucose in the cell that's ultimately going to also signal for this process called insulin resistance to happen. And insulin resistance is a sort of protective mechanism of the cell saying, 
we're not able to process all this glucose, so stop putting it in the cell. So the cell becomes less sensitive to that insulin signal, and therefore what's going to happen is less glucose is going to get into the cell. You're going to start seeing that rise in the bloodstream. And this block to insulin, you know, it's sort of like the the cell saying like there's no room at the end. And so like we're going to help protect the cell from more coming in because we can't we can't host it. So then you've got to think about, well, what are the things that are going to potentially make the mitochondria not able to process that glucose? Um, and one of the it's it's interesting, like one is just what we were talking about before, which is having just over um, being t- asked to produce to process too much glucose. But there's other things and really anything that creates oxidative stress. So too much free radical activity in the cell can also really hurt the mitochondria. So this is a way that insulin resistance and problems with glucose can arise actually separate from just over too much glucose in the body and that are really important to zero in on. And I think a framework to think about is like anything that's hurting my mitochondria is making me less metabolically healthy. Because then you open it up from, it's just sugar that's causing diabetes and obesity to actually there's a whole world of things that can impact the mitochondria and lead to these problems. So for instance, like um, interestingly, fructose, which is not glucose, but it's you know what's found in high fructose corn syrup and what's found in um, juice and, and you know in high levels in these foods that are refined um, fructose products. So interestingly, as fructose, even though it will not raise glucose in the bloodstream, it will be processed by the cell in such a way that it generates a metabolic byproduct called uric acid. And uric acid is a molecule that actually creates oxidative stress in the mitochondria. So even though this is glucose independent, it's creating a problem in the mitochondria, which is then telling the cell, we can't process all this glucose, become insulin resistant. So oxidative stress can happen. And uric acid is one example, of course, oxidized, other oxidized foods. So we hear a lot about oxidized seed oils. So these like vegetable oils and seed oils um, that are prone to oxidation, those can also hurt the mitochondria. And stress can, can do this as well. It can generate damage in the mitochondria. So that's just to say there's sort of a holistic world of things that can impact the mitochondria that can lead to problems with how the cell is processing glucose and cause glucose to rise in the body. And then you hear about all these, um, you know, sort of things that people are doing now to kind of improve their health, the sort of biohackery type things like cold plunging and saunas and intermittent fasting. And I think it's interesting to just touch on this really quickly, because in many ways, these are helping by impacting the mitochondria. When we're fasting, when we are putting um, the body into cold stress, um, when we do you know high intensity interval training or zone two training, actually lower intensity, longer periods of training, what we are doing is building, we are stimulating the body to build more mitochondria. And the reason this feeds into helping with glucose production is for this, it's the other side of this coin. The more you can flow glucose through this system and have these well-functioning machines to process the glucose, of course, the better the cell is going to be at being able to take more in. And it's not going to need to have that insulin resistance signal. So um, so this is just a little bit of a lay of the land of mitochondria and, and insulin resistance. Ultimately, you want our cells to be very sensitive, sensitive to insulin and to really take in what it needs, process it, be done, and not have all this excess. So let's say we become, we're becoming insulin resistant 
And what's happening is that blood sugar is, you know, essentially starting to rise in the body. Well, one interesting thing to realize is that the, the, the blood sugar is actually not going to rise immediately. Once you start becoming insulin resistant, the body is very smart and it actually overcompensates by producing more insulin to help drive that glucose into the cell. And so that's this period of time where your glucose might actually look normal in your bloodstream and on your measurements, but the body's actually in this overcompensation period where it's churning out way more insulin to try and essentially compensate for that insulin resistance and drive more glucose into the cell. And this is a really interesting phase of, of health that actually lasts potentially like decades where you are getting more metabolically dysfunctional, but you're not necessarily seeing it on your standard lab tests of like a fasting glucose that your doctor might order. And the issue is that we don't actually test fasting insulin in our standard clinical practice. Most functional medicine doctors do, um, and sort of more forward thinking metabolic health doctors will test fasting insulin. But if you don't have a picture into that, you could actually be going quite down this spectrum without knowing it in this overcompensation period. So that's just one practical recommendation is to really know where you stand on this, on this spectrum, get a fasting insulin test along with your fasting glucose. So you know, basically how hard the body is working to keep your glucose levels at whatever they are. And to make this concrete, let's say you and I both had a fasting blood sugar level of 80 milligrams per deciliter, which is in the normal range, not close to prediabetes, totally fine. If my body is quite insulin resistant, um, I might be having to put out 30, you know, of insulin to keep my glucose at 80. And you might have an, a fasting insulin level of two. So I'm at 30, you're at two. I'm probably going to get diabetes. You're not. And yet on standard lab tests, we look the same. So that's a really important reason to ask your doctor for a fasting, um, a fasting insulin test over time that compensation mechanism will break down if you continue doing all the normal American lifestyle things and you can't compensate anymore. And then fast, and then glucose will just start going up. And that's when you go to the doctor and they say, oh, your, your blood sugar is creeping up. Oh, you're going into prediabetes range. And the pretty crazy thing is that right now, almost 50% of American adults are in that clinical category, prediabetes or type 2 diabetes. So 130 million Americans are in this state and if you, if, you know, if you add in what I just said about all those people who may be in that compensatory part of the spectrum, there's probably, I don't know, but I'd guess 100 million more who are in that, on that spectrum towards disease, but haven't quite hit it yet in terms of their glucose levels rising. So, you know, that's, an, that's a population I really, I mean, I really want to focus on in terms of trying to shift our mindset in healthcare, because right now we don't pay attention to anyone until really they've reached the type two diabetes threshold, which, as you can tell from this conversation, is probably decades after all of this started. And so there is just so much opportunity. And it is also much easier to turn around this ship and go in the right direction on that spectrum earlier. And that's in part because long-term damage to our mitochondria makes them less functional. Like you can regenerate but mitochondria, you can improve mitochondrial function. But if you've been dealing with these issues for 20, 30 years, 
it's hard to turn that ship and turn them all on again. If you if you're getting on top of this really early, you've still got really good functionality. And so early is better. So that's why we really because the healthcare system is not going to pick up on this for us. We really have to be asking for the right labs, thinking through this framework and making sure we know what's going on. And then just to, to quickly get onto the, the second part of the question, which was <laughs> what's the problem with the glucose levels rising? I mean, one, it's a, it's an indicator of cellular dysfunction, like, like we've been talking about, but the glucose rising in its own right is, is actually very bad for the body. So there's, there's three main things that happen when our glucose levels are quite high. The first is that that glucose, the extra glucose floating on in our bloodstream, it's going to go and stick to things. And that's a process called glycation. And so it's floating around your blood vessels. It's floating around your capillaries. It's floating all around and it's going to stick to blood vessel walls. It's going to stick to cell membranes, proteins. If it's inside the cell, too much of it, it's going to stick to DNA and it causes dysfunction. Glycation is not good. It's sometimes considered in terms of the chemical reaction that's happening when glucose sticks to things, it's like rusting of the body and that's not good. So that's a term people might hear is the creation of advanced glycation end products, ages. That's essentially glucose sticking to things and making whatever it sticks to less functional. So when I'm thinking about keeping my glucose down through diet, through lifestyle, through all the things, I'm like, yeah, I want a lower concentration in my bloodstream so that's not sticking to everything. And one, one fun factoid, wrinkles are actually a product of glycation. And collagen, which is one of the most abundant proteins in the entire body, I think it might actually be the most abundant protein in the body. Collagen, when it gets sugar stuck to it, cross links and creates these links that actually create wrinkling of the skin. So, Mm. and there's been studies in vitro showing that reduction of glucose concentration around collagen can greatly diminish the cross-linking pattern that happens. And this also happens with other structural proteins in the skin. So another reason I care about keeping my glucose down, and it's very true that, you know, even these cosmetic things and beauty, like it's from the inside out for sure. Um, There is no cream that can ameliorate the cross-linking of collagen via glycation. So that's one. Number two is that high glucose in the bloodstream can generate inflammation. It's, it's, a, it's an abnormal thing that's happening in the body and anything abnormal in the body is going to trigger the immune system to think there's a threat or something weird going on and it needs to activate. And we do not want chronic inflammation. We do not want those immune cells constantly secreting their little warlike cytokines, getting the body all activated in defense mode. We want to be in repair and recovery and growth mode, not in threat all hands on deck mode. So sugar will do that. Um, and the third thing is that the high glucose generates additional oxidative stress. So it's sort of unfortunately like a vicious cycle. So glycation, inflammation, oxidative stress, um, and that's sort of molecularly, but there's also a very subjective issue with, um, glucose being high, which is that when you, let's say eat, let's say you eat a huge bowl of Cheerios, tons of carbohydrates, minimal fat, protein, and fiber in there, that's going to be a big glucose load into the bloodstream. When you go up really high, you've got all those other issues we just talked about, but you're also going to cause your body to just do a huge surge of insulin because the body's like, oh my God, there's so much glucose around. We need a huge, huge surge of insulin. And the body can sometimes overcompensate in that moment, that post-meal moment and cause you to crash and actually dip below your pre-meal levels. And so for people who are watching the video, it'll be like straight up and then down below baseline and back to normal. And that crash, which is called postprandial, post-meal, hypoglycemia, low glucose, 
is associated with a lot of subjective issues like fatigue, brain fog, reduced fact recall, mood lability. So I really think about in terms of stabilizing glucose and working in my day-to-day life to do that of like glucose fluctuations day-to-day mirror subjective fluctuations in my experience of the day. And I want, obviously we all, I think, want more stability in our day, whether it's energy, mood, um, cravings, that's another big one. In that reactive hypoglycemia period, people can often have cravings for the next meal. It triggers some of our um, hunger hormones. So stability is good, not only for the molecular reasons, but just for the subjective feeling of our day. I love how you are always going upstream. You know, you're always asking, okay, well, what is the root of that? And what is, I mean, everything from, as you suggested earlier, um, you know, getting our fasting insulin levels measured before all of a sudden we're seeing spikes in our, in our glucose levels. Or for example, like, you know, you talk about, we talk a lot about heart disease, um, and coronary artery disease, which is obviously also very related to, to stroke. Um, so we kind of separate these things out, but actually when we, when we aggregate more or less the same condition, you know, you start to look at, you know, uh, somewhere around a million deaths in the United States per year, just from heart disease and, and stroke. So, but, but what is the root cause there? And, and I think this is, you know, one of the things that you're getting at, you know, when you talk about like, for example, uh, glycation or advanced glycation end products, this um, kind of creation of glycoproteins of, of sugar basically binding with hemoglobin in, in, in your um, in your bloodstream that is moving through our vascular system in such a way to uh, irritate, agitate, to pock up our vascular system such that LDL, which we often uh, you know blame. Um, uh, gives it a, a a better chance of kind of lodging in your endothelial arterial walls and then forming plaques and, and things like that. But oftentimes blaming the LDLs, as you know, like blaming the, the firemen for the fire, right. what we really want to get to is like, well, why, why do we not have this beautiful glassy Zamboni like <laughs> vascular system? Um, well, one of the reasons is an excess of, of uh, glucose, in the bloodstream, which is then leading to these things like glycation. And then you also go, you know, speak uh, incredibly eloquently about the kind of inflammatory um, agency of, of having too much um, blood sugar or, you know, insulin essentially converting an abundance of glucose to triglycerides or in, and that we store as this kind of excess adipose tissue that, um, that again, can be an inflammatory agent and, and contribute to things like heart disease. I was just reading about something, and I, this is something I don't know anything about, but there's some um, particular protein, I think, called uh, tropon, troponin or troponin, yeah. and um, that which is highly uh, correlated with myocardial infarction, which seems to be very, very connected to um, to presence of or prevalence of triglycerides. So all of this stuff is so connected and it's hard, as you say, to 
you know, get a read on it just from your PCP, you know? Um, so this is where, um, you know, the work that you're doing is so incredibly useful to give people some sort of transparency into where they are at any particular moment. And the cool thing about CGMs and, you know, I wear one and I, I try not to actually get anxious about it. So that's one of the things maybe you can help me with. Yeah. But, um, but they're not, you know, the, the cool thing about CGMs is that they're not flattened averages or they're not just snapshots in time, you know, that you can watch it and you can adapt and adopt new behaviors based around the data that you're collecting on yourself, not some uh, epidemiological observational study. You're, you get the opportunity in some ways to just experiment on yourself and uh, and adapt and, and adopt different behaviors around the what you're finding. So I, I think it's just fascinating. Um, so going then back a step further, you know, I think you, you've you've hinted at some of these things. But what are some of the variables um, that lead to hyperglycemia? And I suppose just to address the elephant in the room first, we should just talk about diet because there's so much to to unpack there. So what are the primary contributors to spikes in, in blood glucose? And then what are some of the ones that we maybe aren't expecting? Yeah. So I think there's one important thing to, to lay out before getting into talking about spikes, which is that there's kind of two ways to look at blood sugar. There is There are day-to-day patterns in blood sugar, which is like we eat something or we do something and we might see a spike or a small up and down. And that's the type of data you can see on your continuous glucose monitor. Like I eat a meal and I have a spike. But then there's the long-term patterns over time, which is like how you're kind of creeping up in terms of baseline glucose levels and glucose stability over time. And that's more, so the the former is more representative of our day-to-day choices and feeds in to our long-term metabolic health. But the more longer-term trends over time, like where our fasting glucose is, is more a function of long-term metabolic health. And both you can get a signal on from a continuous glucose monitor. Um, but that's just one thing to kind of, to kind of keep in mind. And where I think, you know, the continuous glucose monitor data, which is, you know, for people who aren't familiar, uh, essentially a wearable, you know, like your Fitbit or your aura ring or your whoop strap or whatnot, but it's actually, instead of measuring through the skin, it's, you know, with a light, it's a little probe that goes under the skin painlessly, um, like a little hair-like filament that's actually testing your blood sugar um, every five to 15 minutes, depending on the brand of sensor, sending that information to your smartphone. So you can see essentially a lab test being generated every five to 15 minutes, 24 hours a day. It's totally crazy and amazing that this exists. And it's the first real-time internal biomarker we could ever see. And fortunately it's a really important one. And it's a really good one to help us understand specifically how the choices we're making in our day-to-day life around diet and other lifestyle pillars are affecting our health. So we don't have to wait, you know, a year to have this crumb of information from our doctor of like, here's your fasting glucose one day out of 365 and say, this is some amazing, you know, picture of your health. It's it's not. And so that's, so this is opening up now, you know, 
tens of thousands of data points in a year that you really have control over that are much more useful. And because of what we talked about earlier, which is that these these big spikes in glucose, like from that big bowl of Cheerios, you know, those are creating molecular issues in the body acutely. It's also generating that insulin surge that's going to ultimately, if it happens repeatedly, you know, day in and day out, five times a day over years, will lead to that insulin resistance. It will be one of the factors that leads to insulin resistance. So by seeing the day-to-day patterns of what is spiking you and what keeps you stable, you can make holistic choices to stay more stable over time, keep the insulin more stable over time, and ideally prevent the long-term insulin resistance. So in terms of the pillars that are really most important for determining what you're going to see on that continuous glucose monitor, the key ones are diet, exercise, sleep, and stress management. You know, four key pillars of health. Each of them is its own universe of how it affects glucose levels and metabolism. So starting with, and they're not the only four things that matter. There's there's three others I think that are quite important, um, which I'll mention briefly, which is our micronutrient status. So not just diet, like holistically, like macros, but actually what are the micronutrients we're getting? Vitamins and minerals, which are key metabolic cofactors um, that allow all this internal cellular machinery to actually work. Um, so this is not just about how much fat or glucose you're eating. It's actually also about what micronutrients you have to power the engines. Um, but those are going to have less of an acute impact um, on your blood sugar. The, the, so that's the fifth one. The sixth one is um, our microbiome. So important for our metabolic health. Again, not something that's going to have an acute impact on our blood sugar spikes day to day because the microbiome doesn't change hugely day to day, but massively important for dictating our fundamental metabolic health. And then the the seventh would be um, uh, our in exposure to environmental toxins. So there are so many chemicals in our environment that can disrupt the functioning and the machinery of our mitochondria and our cell membranes and our enzymes. And again, not going to see that day to day, but if you're exposed to these things over long periods of time, things like... Um, persistent organic pollutants like pesticides, you you will screw up this machinery. So the four that really have, a, can you know, we can, the four levers we can pull day to day to have an impact on our glucose stability are food, exercise, sleep, and stress management. And then the three others that are more critical for our long-term metabolic health is, you know, exposure to environmental toxins, micronutrient status, and microbiome. But in terms of those four, you know, really to put it put it simply, it's like, to have optimal metabolic health, we need all four of those pillars to be on point. One is not, they are all necessary and none is sufficient to have optimal metabolic health. So for instance, you can have the perfect metabolic diet, but if you are chronically stressed or if you are dealing with unresolved trauma that keeps your body in a sense of threat, it, it's still going to have an impact on your metabolism. You cannot override one of these others. Um, with, with the others. So let's say you're totally sedentary, you know, that is going to have an impact on metabolism, even if the diet is perfect. So it's not that all have to be perfect, but we do need to be thinking about them. And if we're not making the progress we want, looking at those other pillars can be, can be really helpful. And they're often very connected. I mean, if you're stressed, there's a good chance that you're not sleeping particularly well. And if you're not sleeping particularly well, well, you might be reaching for comfort foods, et cetera. So um, so they are often interrelated, but, um, I think your point is well taken. You know, we need to focus on those four pillars individually such that, you know, they're, they're optimized. 
Um, so, um, so yeah, so specifically, I suppose with diet, I mean, I suppose there's some, some low hanging fruit, um, well, no pun intended there at all, uh, <laughs> because actually fruit can be a very positive source of glucose. And we'll probably get into that. Um, and, and mostly fructose, obviously, but to eat the to, combinations of actually the matrix of how you eat with fiber and um, et cetera. But just as a kind of top line, what are like the some of the core food groups that are going to really be deleterious to to your glucose levels? Yeah. So I think the big category I would talk about is refined sugars and ultra-refined processed grains. These two, if we could eliminate them, would have incalculable uh, improvements in health. Um, as many people I'm sure know, there are like over 60 names for sugar. It's the, There are literally industries devoted to figuring out how to, how to get us... Um, confused about how much sugar is in our food down to the nutrition labels and the way it's worded on the packages. So we all just need to be like hyper vigilant around the sugar in our food and ideally not eat foods with added sugar. So this is not fruit, which has natural sugar. This is food that has added sugar or that took a natural food and stripped away part of it and left the sugar. So that would be things like juice. Um, Anything that concentrates sugar or puts in added sugar is going to be horrible for metabolic health, point blank. Um, yes, the body can process small amounts of it. And if you have, let's say you have, you know, the, the big cookie or the big glass of juice and have a really big glucose spike from that, the body's amazing. It's resilient. It will release insulin. It will process it. Um, that's fine. It's not going to damage you permanently. But if that happens five times a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year for a decade, there's a, there's a problem. That's an overload. And unfortunately, that is what is happening in modern American life. I mean, we literally go from carb to carb to carb to carb all day long. Um, and that's totally normalized. And so that's the big category. So white flours, refined grains, added and processed sugars. Um, the second category of things would be the other foods that essentially screw up our mitochondria that are not glucose, you know, and, and just to be clear, the refined white grains, you know, the flours and basically, you know, chips, tortillas, breads, pastries, bagels, pancakes, all those things that just basically turns directly into sugar in the body. So that's why I'm lumping them together. These are just naked carbohydrates with no other protein, fat, or fiber on them. So that's- And that's sometimes they're camouflaged as healthy, right? Oh yeah, for sure. Like cereals, for example. And I think cereals. you found some incredible uh, results in the massive amount of data that you've been collecting around cereals, for example. Oh yeah, we've seen just that you know cereals are a disaster for people's blood sugar. Specifically, our worst cereals in our data set have been Honey Nut Cheerios, Cinnamon Toast Crunch, and Lucky Charms. I mean, no surprise, but okay. these are foods that are getting you know served to children to start their day, and those foods just uh, t together have around a fifty-five to fifty-nine milligram per deciliter spike after eating that. Um, wow. in our levels data set. And yeah. so for 
comparison, I typically don't want my glucose to ever go above about 20 milligrams per deciliter after a meal. I want that very gentle rolling hill, knowing that I'm not having a huge insulin spike. So this is like three times that for breakfast, you know, so cereal's a disaster by and large. And I, I am excited about a lot of the the grain-free cereal brands that are coming online that are made with nuts and seeds and very little sugar. And like, there's some really great alternatives now. Um, but so that's one big category. And then the second parts of diet that really we need to watch out for in terms of metabolic health is the things that are causing mitochondrial damage. So this is again, fructose, um, which can generate the uric acid, which causes mitochondrial dysfunction and then other foods that cause oxidative stress. So like the refined seed oils, the refined vegetable oils, you know, really, I think for practical purposes, the best, you know, fats to use are whole food fats. So like nuts and seeds and coconut and avocado and olives and things like that. But if you're going to use oils or refined um, fats, avocado oil, you know, all organic avocado oil, extra virgin olive oil, um, coconut oil, ghee, things that are less prone to oxidation. Um, people worry about olive oil because it has a lower smoke point than some of these other fats. Um, but it's actually got so many antioxidants in the food that it actually kind of buffers, um, the pro-oxidant, uh, you know, exposure. And that's some of the beautiful things about foods, uh, natural foods is that they sometimes are packaged with things to basically make them more protective. So, um, yeah, so, so foods that are, um, you know, heavily oxidized. And then I think another category of food is just anything that screws up the microbiome, which at this point, I mean, there are so many things that screw up the microbiome. So low fiber being a really big one. The, the microbiome, which of course we have more bacterial cells in our body than human cells. And they are basically this beautiful population of little organisms that cells that create all these meta, all these byproducts when they digest fiber that make us happy and healthy, literally happy. I mean, they are involved in our neurotransmitter production. Yeah. So when we feed the microbiome, we feed our chances of being happy and healthy. And so these low fiber foods, which is essentially like all the foods in boxes that have been stripped of their fiber, which is like 70% of the grocery store, that's bad for the microbiome. You know, things with, of course, I'm a big proponent of organic food in part because the pesticides and the chemicals, the glyphosate that's all over these foods is, you know, going to be damaging to the microbiome, um, processed meats, certainly. So like the deli meats and the ultra processed meats can be damaging and can actually create metabolic byproducts through the microbiome that are damaging to the body. Um, so all of that is sort of the, what not to eat. I think it's, it, it, it's pretty simple when it comes down to it. It's like eat whole foods as close to nature as possible, as cleanly grown as possible, and ideally things that are not naked carbohydrates. So very carbohydrate-rich meals on their own. So balancing food. So instead of eating a huge grain bowl with little else on it or a ton of fruit with little else on it, which are whole foods, balance that with some fat, some protein, some fiber. So you're not getting this huge glucose load on its own, but, you know, sticking with the colorful whole foods, the antioxidant rich foods, you know, protect your mitochondria, 
avoiding the refined and processed sugars and grains. Um, and of course, like we mentioned Mark Hyman earlier in the podcast, you know, his book, um, The Pegan Diet, I think for anyone who's just like, oh my God, this is all great, but where the heck do I start? You know, start there, start with the Pegan Diet, start with his cookbook, What the Heck Do I Eat? Very simple. Um, and it will, it'll, you know, it'll absolutely change your life if you're consistent with a lot of those habits. Yeah. I think one thing that is so interesting is that, you know, you brought up that this is a relatively recent phenomenon that we, what we've seen it, it, these kind of chronic levels of kind of pre, pre-diabetic, um, glucose levels. And, um, and in a way we could think about it as sort of culture outpacing human evolution on some level. I mean, I know our, our friend or, or your friend, uh, Rick Johnson, and then oh. also David Perlmutter wrote a lot about, you know, uric acid in the uric acid pathway and how, like, as you say, it dysregulates uh, mitochondria such that it, it produces um, insulin resistance. And, and actually what it is, I think, is a sort of a signal for insulin um, resistance so that our body can actually store fat for times of scarcity. Yeah. And that was, that was an adaptive advantage, <laughs> you know, not that long ago, but you know, our culture has moved so fast that an evolution is slow. And so we just have not been able to adapt to diets that have, you know, added sugar in 80 to 84% of everything on the, on the shopping, uh, in the grocery store. And, you know, I've also seen like soda companies tout this thing. Well, you know, uh, you know, our sodas don't actually produce any glucose spike be because <laughs> fructose is, it's like this wolf in sheep's clothing, right? It, it doesn't actually produce a spike necessarily, but what it's doing, as you say, is damaging the mitochondria such that we become insulin resistant. So downstream, it has an incredibly deleterious impact uh, on our, on our blood sugar levels, but it's not necessarily causing that spike. So it can kind of hide. <laughs> and, um, so what about, um, some of these other things that, um, trigger the, the uric acid pathway, like purines, um, you know, these small, which are often small fish, because sometimes we've been taught to actually eat the small fish. Right. Um, and then alcohol, those are, are, are two of the other ones there. Yeah, alcohol, purines, and umami-rich foods, and dehydration are big ones. Um, and and just to, and these all can generate to can activate the uric acid pathway, which we've talked about a little bit. And two, just incredible books, both out in February 2022 that everyone should read. I just life changing. Yeah. Nature wants us to be fat by Rich Johnson and um, Drop Acid by David Perlmutter. And both get into deep metabolic topics like what we're talking about today. But one key thing about that story, like you said, is that this is all adaptive. Like our body, there is an evolutionary um, environmental mismatch that we are dealing with right now that is leading to our obesity epidemic, our diabetes epidemic, and all the other associated metabolic conditions. And because we were in times of food scarcity for the vast majority of human history, it was so interesting when the, when the, when the, when the body, the, you know, mammalian body, essentially, um, whether it's, you know, humans or bears or rodents or whatever would have access to all that fruit sugar in fall 
um, once the berries got very ripe, they get this huge influx of fructose and glucose because fruit has both of them. And one way we have to look at fructose is it is a chemical piece of information that tells our body, you now have access to calories. You didn't have calories for most of the year. So you need to put all of this into storage. Don't just burn through it, store it all because you you are going to have no food for the winter, maybe hibernating during the winter. And so you need to store it. So fructose is actually a incredible, crazy signal that not only drives us to eat more because it wanted to signal to that bear or that human, eat as many berries as you possibly can while they're there. Not just like, oh, these are good. I'll have a few. Like go at it. And like, when you think about the obesity epidemic, I mean, we're all eating high fructose corn syrup in like most of our processed foods. It's literally a chemical messenger saying, eat more. Winter is coming. Store the fat. And then the way molecularly it tells you to store the fat is it breaks the mitochondria. And then what happens, and I don't think I've mentioned this quite yet, is that when the mitochondria is broken, not only can you not process the glucose efficiently, but it shunts it to fat storage. So it's like for anyone dealing with wanting to lose weight, like this is a key pathway to be aware of. If you can take that break off the mitochondria by lowering that uric acid and lowering the chronic overnutrition, um, lowering the insulin levels, um, you can stop that shunting of this, of to storage essentially. Um, and so, so it's not so much about the conventional calories in calories out model. It's more about what are these individual molecules telling our body specific, which, what are these calories saying? And fructose is saying something very different than other types of calories and glucose is as well. And so if we focus on the things that actually matter and lower those, I think we can often see more rapid, um, results, but What's, what's interesting about, you know, the uric acid story is that, yes, they've also found that dehydration can activate um, the uric acid pathway. Interestingly, um, oh, and, and just sorry, one other thing I'll say about the storage of fat and, and how that relates to kind of um, metabolic issues. A lot of this, all of this is happening in the liver. Like this is where a lot of this processing of fructose is happening. Um, and this mitochondrial breakdown that we've been talking about, it's really centralized in the liver. And when that liver cell gets stuffed with fat from essentially sugars being converted to fat because of the uric acid block on the mitochondria, that you can imagine this cell that's not supposed to be filled with fat is now filled with fat. Of course, it's going to become insulin resistant. Like it's just, it's not working. And so- We really need to be zeroing into our livers. I think that the liver is going to be the organ of the next decade now that what we're learning, because like almost 40% of Americans now have fatty liver, which is a result of, you know, all this stuff we're talking about. And a big problem is that our liver function testing often just gets totally glossed over by the doctors. It's like, oh, you're in the normal range. Well, our normal range has actually expanded over the past 30 or 40 years because we we make our standardized ranges based on two standard deviations from the mean. <laughs> well, our mean is pretty bad right now. You know, 14% of Americans have type 2 diabetes right now. 1% had diabetes 50 years ago. So we do not want to be two standard deviations from the mean. We want to be way lower. And so we need to look really closely at our, our AST and our ALT, our liver function tests, make sure those aren't creeping up. Um, 
I believe Rick Johnson recommends uh, keeping those below about 25. Often we'll see them in the high 30s and it will just be like, we'll be told, oh, that, that's fine. That's normal. So zeroing in on that. And if your doctor says you have fatty liver, like that is a clue. Like there's a lot going on. It may precede blood sugar issues or diabetes, but it's a huge red flag that we got to cut, you know, cut all the foods that are driving liver fat, which is of course the fructose, the refined carbs and sugars and these pro-oxidant, um, these pro-oxidant foods. And so, um, yeah, so it's just, uh, it's fascinating physiology and, and, you know, but when we know this stuff, we can make these smart, smart choices. Um, and, uh, and one of the things that Rick Johnson says in his book is actually that while glucose alone, of course, can spike insulin and generate that kind of insulin resistant process, there's a fascinating pathway where actually high glucose levels, when they get above a certain point, it activates another pathway in the body called the polyl pathway that actually converts glucose to fructose. And so not only you're getting a double whammy of glucose causing problems in the body and then also be converting to fructose, which then is causing that metabolic dysfunction. So we want to keep glucose low. We want to keep fructose low. And it's fairly straightforward to eat, eat that way if you know what is spiking your glucose levels. And that's where a continuous glucose monitor can be extremely helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you just a personal story about where I, I wear a sensor. Um, I wear a monitor and, um, you know, you were talking about dehydration for a minute. And, um, so I've been experimenting with all of these kind of hormetic, uh, modalities, the, these kind of adversity, memetics. Uh, so basically like what doesn't kill you will make you stronger. So, you know, um, cold baths and hydrotherapy and saunas and, and other things too, fasting, et cetera. So I, I was taking regular saunas and um, I was seeing massive spikes mm. uh, on my CGM. And um, I was like, actually, I didn't, I didn't correlate them right away. I was just seeing, you know, big spikes, but like really significant spikes, like, you know, 40, 50 milligram spikes, you know, um, you know, like jelly donut style spikes, <laughs> um, or, or Skittles, I guess. Right. Um, I saw that data point that, that you guys had. Um, the worst, yeah, the worst the, food in our entire data set. Yeah. Skittles. <laughs> Skittles I know. Um, and, um, and I couldn't figure out because I have, you know, I have a pretty optimized, you know, diet. It's like low carbohydrate vegetables, fiber and protein rich foods, et cetera, whole foods. Um, and, uh, and, and I condense all my eating into eight hours and we can talk about that too a little bit. But so I was like, why am I seeing some of these huge spikes? Um, and then finally I realized the spikes were coming when I was taking a sauna. Hmm. And I was like, okay, you know, what is going on here? And actually I'll ask you because I'm not sure I totally put my finger on it. Um, but obviously there, there is some correlation between glucose spikes and dehydration. And I guess I would ask you, is that because dehydration essentially lowers overall blood volume such that then all anything that's in your blood essentially reads as a higher concentration. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I did start to then 
which is one of the great things about having a CGMs because then I could actually pinpoint, okay, great. And now I figure out where the correlation is. Then I started like drinking a tremendous amount of water, you know, before um, taking a sauna. And I saw those, I saw the spikes level out. There were still, you know, you know, an ascent and, you know, maybe it was also connected to some of this like dawn phenomenon because I was doing um, the saunas kind of in the morning. Mm. Um, so anyways, I, I don't know if you have any diagnosis there around kind of dehydration and, and some of the spikes that I was seeing. Yeah. So there's probably a few, like probably three things at play there. One, which is sort of the the most boring is that is that extreme temperatures can actually lead to some sensor malfunction. So there could be an element of that. Um, okay, and we see yeah. that with cold or extreme heat, you can sometimes get erroneous readings. Um, but not not always. And there is physiology to support that your glucose would actually go up in the heat irregardless. Um, but in moments like that, I always find it quite interesting to do a finger prick to see what's happening. Um, is it is it a real phenomenon or is it um, a device issue? So, you know, I'll do that if my glucose is really low. I'll do it if my glucose is really high in a surprising way. And I'll off, you know, sometimes I'll find a discrepancy between what the sensor is reading and what the finger prick blood glucose is. Um, the the point about the dawn effect. So the dawn effect is this interesting phenomenon um, where in the morning we release you know, cortisol at the end of the night, essentially. And that stress hormone essentially is a part of what helps us get us up in the morning. But stress hormones, cortisol, catecholamines, like uh, adrenaline, um, noradrenaline or epinephrine, um, these are fascinating because they, when the body's under threat or stress, the body thinks that it needs to mobilize to evade a threat. And so the muscles therefore need quick access to energy. So these hormone, these stress hormones actually tell our liver to dump a little bit of stored glucose into the bloodstream. And we can often see a little spike with stressful events. And this dawn effect is essentially representative of that. The body releases stress hormones to help mobilize some sugar, help us sort of wake up, get out of wow. bed, mobilize. And that's, that that's could be fascinating. So, so is that basically glycogen, stored glycogen being released from the liver? That's right. It's glycogenolysis. Wow. And um, and this is why, and this is going off on a little bit of a tangent, but we will often see or have reported from members that they undergo a stressful event, even when they're fasted, and they will see a large glucose spike, sometimes like 50 points. So like, a, like you said, wow. a jelly donut type spike. Yeah. And I actually... Um, I will never forget one of the first times, like three years ago, I did a big presentation in in front of a bunch of people. It was the first time I did a public speaking event wearing continuous glucose monitor and I had not eaten it because I do some intermittent fasting. My glucose went up like 40 points and I was like, this is real. This is, and then we've of course seen it hundreds of times since then now that our, our member base is so much larger. So that is literally a physiologic response telling the body you think you're under threat. You think you've got to run from the lion or the criminal or whatever. And so we're mobilizing glucose for you. Now, this is, a, wow. this is adaptive. It's like, thank you, body, for trying. But in our modern world where we are not running from anything, you know, we have very little physical threat compared to the rest of human history. All our threat now is psychological. We generate the threat for ourselves with 
the horns honking in the cars and the text message dings and the emails and the conversations and the social media. So we are, we are, this is the problem is that we are still getting that sense of threat to the body. We are still releasing the glucose, but we are not using the muscles. So now you've got glucose just sitting in the bloodstream and you're not actually, you don't have a sink for it. And so two things that have really changed my life. And I think a lot of members lives from knowing this and and really actually using continuous glucose monitoring as a mindfulness biofeedback tool, which is kind of strange to think about is one, how important it is to practice the tried and true mindfulness techniques that tell that activate your parasympathetic nervous system, activate your vagus nerve. And essentially in my mind is like pouring out other chemicals, telling the body it's okay. There's not a threat, you know, So I am so much more cognizant now of my deep diaphragmatic breaths throughout the day, knowing what I know about my glucose spikes in relation to stress and what my triggers are. And I think this actually has been very much synergized with the use of heart rate variability monitors. So um, I wear a monitor sometimes called a leaf therapeutic, which is a real-time HRV monitor that sits on your chest. And so seeing the glucose spike and seeing my HRV dip together is a prompt now, my God, take five deep breaths, tell your body you're safe. And it's like, that's in our control in a lot of ways. There's of course, deeper levels of stress, like unresolved trauma, which I actually is very interesting in relation to metabolism because people with adverse childhood events and and really deep traumatic events tend to develop metabolic disease much more severely um, and in higher rates. And so there's that deeper level of stress that often needs a lot deeper therapy to unwind, but that can actually be a big part with my patients of, of getting them to the next level of their metabolic health is to, to dig into what is causing your body to kind of constantly feel like it's in threat. So, so that's the, Mm. that's the stress piece that, um, that I have just found really interesting and and something, the second, uh, there was the second reason it sort of impacted me. And I think a lot of members lives is because you realize that what you don't want is to release glucose in the bloodstream and then not, you, you know, not use it. So this is why using your muscles. So if you're stressed, take a brief walk. If you just ate, take a brief, brief walk, do something to use the muscle. Cause the muscles, I think of muscle as this gigantic, humongous, cellular glucose sink. And the really cool thing about muscle is that it does not require insulin to take up glucose. It's like one of the only cell types in the body that does not need insulin to take up glucose. So, so you can, um, you know, imagine it's like a, it's like a freebie. And the crazy thing is that there's so many studies showing that even just taking a 15 minute walk or a 30 minute walk or a two minute walk every half hour throughout the day, significantly lowers 24 hour glucose levels. Because even if you just walk from here to the bathroom, you're activating quads, hamstrings, calves, core muscles. These are billions of cells that all are taking up glucose. So anyways, the moral of that story is just like create a glucose sink. And you can do that by just moving your body a little bit. And the more you can do it throughout the day, the better. It doesn't have to be crazy intense. Um, but just basically get that sink going. Um, so those are things that the, you know, the monitor can tell you aside from diet. Yeah, that's amazing. So how soil is a carbon sink, (laughs) your muscles are a glucose sink. And so that's amazing. You know, I've often, you know, heard and read about, you know, okay, you, you have a meal 
and then just go take, you know, a 10 minute walk around the block or something. And you can see that that will regulate your, your, your blood glucose levels. But what I'm hearing you also say is that kind of on the Serengeti of Facebook, <laughs> um, you know, if you, you know, are foolish enough to get into a skirmish or to be triggered or you get that email or, you know, inevitably you get some bad news, um, you know, take a breather and actually walk around the block or for me, I have 93 steps to get to my house <laughs> so I don't have to go far. Um, and uh, and that, that that is just an absolutely efficient way to uh, to offset some of the sort of cortisol driven um, or epinephrine driven fight or flight driven glucose spike that you might be experiencing. That's fascinating, fascinating. Yeah, um, the, the power of a walk cannot be under overstated. Um, there is actually hordes of scientific literature that shows this. And we did a study at levels actually where we had people drink a 12 ounce can of Coke totally voluntarily. First Coke I've drank in about, you know, 20 years. Um, <laughs> it was not fun. And um, and do that and the next day do it. And ideally under very similar conditions, like same sleep, same exercise, same everything. So Coke on one day and Coke plus walk immediately after the Coke very gentle walk. And we saw a 32% reduction in the glucose spike just from taking a simple walk. Um, and the average spike went from 162 milligrams per deciliter to 132 milligrams per deciliter, which is a lot. And over the course of a lifetime, that's, you know, that's a lot of improvement. And so, and it's so simple. So like, a definite part of my routine now, and kind of one of the boxes I really like to check, because it's so simple is like post dinner, like, before you do the dishes and like start cleaning up, just take a spin around the block. And if you can't do that because it's freezing or whatever, turn on music and just like kind of have a dance party like while you're <laughs> cleaning up or like do a few squats or whatever. It's just like keep the body moving. Like muscles are such a gift. Um, and the bigger your muscles are, the more of a glucose sink you have, which is part of why resistance training, I think, has been shown to be so effective for stabilizing glucose levels. Hmm, interesting. Um, what about the cadence of consuming macronutrients and combining foods and the impacts of that. Can you talk about that a little bit? For sure. Yeah. So in terms of cadence is a really interesting question. This actually comes up a lot in um, Rick Johnson's and David Perlmutter's new books because they've actually found that if you consume a soda more slowly, it has fewer detrimental metabolic effects. And this gets right back to this whole framework we've been talking about as the body as a machine that has to process things. You know, we have a certain number of cells, a certain number of mitochondria, a certain number of cell receptors. And if you down a Coke with, let's say, 50 grams of added sugar in two minutes, which is possible, your body is seeing all of that in one, in one moment. And so you end up overloading all of these pathways and generating more. You can't process like for whatever the downstream byproduct is, uric acid, you just can't do it. However, if it's a slow drip, you can imagine it's like substrate process, get rid of substrate process, get rid of it. That's, you know, and that is, so you're not going to have the buildup of the damaging metabolic byproducts so much like that generate oxidative stress and whatnot. So that was some really interesting research that I think his lab did showing that Drinking something over the course of two to three hours is very different from drinking something in two to three minutes. So that's one thing 
you know, to just think about if you are drinking juice or, you know, iced tea with sugar or whatever it is during the day. Um, And you want to move from, you can't give it up yet, but you want to move to harm reduction. (laughs) Like that's maybe one way to do it. The next thing that's really an exciting tactic that you can sort of implement is food um, sequencing. So if you eat, for instance, the, the carbohydrate rich portion of your meal first, you're likely to have more of a glucose response than if you eat the protein, fiber, and fat first, and then eat the carbohydrate-rich stuff. Which it's funny because <laughs> you go to a restaurant and they start with bread or tortilla chips, depending on where you're at, or pita or whatever it is, and then you get the salad, and then you get the like protein, and it's totally backwards. Yeah. It should actually be the salad. And then whatever, the chicken and the asparagus or whatever, and then the potatoes and then the bread. Ideally, no potatoes and bread. But if you're going to have them in terms of minimizing the response to them, that's the way to do it. And it's for several reasons. It slows down GI uh, stomach absorption. It slows down the, you know, the movement of this stuff. So again, you're not getting the flood of glucose. Um, fiber actually may block some of the glucose from ever even getting in. Like you may actually have less that goes from the gut to the bloodstream. So that's pretty cool. That's like freebie. Um, and, and it also is going to affect your satiety hormones differently. Like you may not actually be as hungry when you get to those carbs. Um, so I, I definitely recommend thinking about that when you're, when you're moving through your plate, um, start with your protein or high fat, um, or fiber rich food. Um, you know, one couple of foods that I lean on aggressively are like chia seeds, um, and flax seeds. So I'll often, you know, do a chia seed pudding in the morning, which is just a, that's a ton of fiber. One of the most fiber rich foods on the planet. There's also healthy fats and protein in that, and then maybe eat some fruit or something like that. And that's going to be very blood sugar balancing, have some walnuts, maybe and some almond butter on top as well. Um, so that's sequencing. Um, in this, in the studies, they looked at things like, um, eating eggs or nuts or things they could really control the portions of, but it was those types of foods that eat in before like bread or pasta, um, had a, had a positive effect. So basically, you know, fill your, fill your stomach with non-glucose spiking roughage, you know, vegetables, lettuce, et cetera, and those other things before eating the carbs, um, the, 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 the balancing is the second piece of this. So this is less about sequencing, but more about pairing. I'd mentioned naked carbohydrates. And I think that's a really important paradigm to get behind when you just are eating straight carbs alone, even if they're healthy ones like fruit, um, which has beautiful nutrients in it, beautiful antioxidants. I kind of want to get like the best bang for my buck. So again, I'm going to pair that. If I'm going to have a banana, I'm going to put it in a smoothie, maybe with Tons of chia seed, flax seed, greens, um, almond butter, you know, nut milk or whatever. So it's really going to change the absorption of that banana. And it's not just one big carb load. Um, so you really just want to think about balancing those macronutrients and really think about like fiber, protein, and fat as your friend when it comes to carbohydrates. So these days, I rarely eat carbohydrates alone. I would not, for instance, eat... Um, a straight sweet potato because I've done that and I went up 80 points on my glucose. And it's like, I know that sweet potatoes have beautiful 
vitamins and minerals in it. It is not an unhealthy food. But eating it totally on its own, if I'm doing that all the time, um, I'm going to see huge glucose spikes. And so if I can maybe eat a smaller amount and put some tahini on it, sprinkle some flaxseed on it, have a big salad around it, totally different response. Right. So combine proteins and fats with your carbs yeah, and, um, fiber. and fiber. And then also fiber will have some other positive downstream effects because as it gets into your colon, it will feed your bacteria to create um, postbiotics or short chain fatty acids, which we referred to briefly before we, we started recording. The, fam- the most famous of which is butyrate. And I've read, and maybe you can clarify, that butyrate can actually upregulate insulin sensitivity, among other things. So many reasons right. to celebrate fiber. 100%. Yeah, there, absolutely. It can, it's, you know, butyrate and short chain fatty acids are very pro metabolic health, and they are literally the byproduct of feeding our microbiome prebiotics and fiber. Um, it, it's not going to be the type of thing that you'll see in the moment on your glucose monitor, but it is what you're doing to build the processes that will ultimately help you process glucose better. So I think of those as the long term investments. Um, and the beautiful thing about fiber is it has short term benefits. You'll, you will see an improvement in your glucose when you eat fiber because of the way that it slows absorption and blocks, you know, absorption. And then of course, you're also getting the downstream positive molecular effects from the impact on the microbiome. Great. So I want to just have the opportunity to at least briefly address some of the um, metabolic health testing that you're offering. And, you know, just maybe at a high level, you can outline some of the, I guess, what the core key metrics and biomarkers that are essential to determining uh, metabolic health besides just um, mm-hmm. glucose blood monitoring? Yeah. So so we started offering, you know, our core product at Levels has always been the continuous glucose monitoring paired with the software. So you can really understand how the food choices you're making are instantly affecting your glucose levels. So you can make better choices to stabilize your glucose, as well as other lifestyle things and how they relate. However, I think hopefully it's become clear in this conversation, there's a lot more around metabolism than just glucose. It's more the holistic picture of how we make and process energy in the body. So we put together a set of lab tests, some of which will be ordered by a standard, you know, panel by your doctor, by your primary care, but some of which are not, and they're more difficult to access because doctors are not yet aware of how important these are um, in understanding the early pre-disease state of metabolic dysfunction. We don't really care a lot about pre-disease in the Western medical system. And so we wanted to provide access to people who want to track these things. So basically the way this works is Levels members can sign up for this uh, panel. A phlebotomist actually comes to their home at whatever schedule they want. You know, they could do it every month if they want to see how their dietary dietary changes are impacting their blood levels. They could do it every six months, but you don't have to go to your doctor have them say no, you know, oh, we're going to do this in six months. It's really on your terms and under your control. And it's actually very inexpensive. Um, I believe it's $179 for the full panel and the phlebotomist coming to your house. And what we include is a full cholesterol panel, which includes total cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, and triglycerides, inflammatory marker, um, high sensitivity CRP, because there's an amazingly complex bidirectional relationship between inflammation and metabolism. We also have fasting insulin, 
which I hope I convinced people earlier in this conversation <laughs> that that's a really important test to get, maybe the most important test. Um, hemoglobin A1C, which is, a, a, again, a standard lab test, but it's a three-month marker or a three-month signal of what's going on in your uh, in your glucose levels. And that's an interesting one because it goes back to the glycation conversation. And you mentioned this briefly. When sugar sticks to the hemoglobin in our red blood cells, that can actually be picked up on this lab test. And the percentage of glycated hemoglobin is what this test reports. So if you have more glucose in your bloodstream, more glycated hemoglobin, that shows up on this test. Um, and I believe that's the... Um, that's the test, the full panel. At this point, we are going to be expanding it um, to likely include uric acid and liver function testing for reasons we've talked about. Um, but, uh, but for now, it's those tests I mentioned. And what I'm most excited about with this testing panel is actually how we help people interpret the results because there is so much more information in these standard tests than what we're normally given. For instance, well, this is the way it usually goes down in the doctor's office. You get your blood work done. You go into the doctor. You have a 15-minute visit to talk about, you know, 15 different things. And they look at the computer and they see green check marks and they say, you're totally fine. You look good. Well, any functional medicine doctor or, you know, someone who's kind of looking a little deeper into this can often look at that same list and be like, actually, there's a much bigger story here. There are clues within this cholesterol panel that problems are on the horizon. For instance, and a lot of this has to do with the fact that our ranges for what's normal are not normal. They're way too liberal. And we actually really need to tighten up these ranges if we really want to keep people in optimal health. So the first thing we do is help people understand what are the optimal ranges, not just normal ranges. For instance, there are many healthcare systems right now that triglyceride um, levels, which are a very important sort of blood fat biomarker that represent the conversion of glucose to fat and actually are a stronger predictor of heart disease and cardiac events than LDL and yet have been minimized in the conversation about between LDL and triglycerides with LDL being vilified and triglycerides kind of being ignored. And even though triglycerides are a stronger predictor and there are many theories to why this has kind of come about. Rob Lustig, Dr. Rob Lustig's book, Metabolical, talks about this quite a bit. He said, even though the odds ratio for heart disease is much higher with triglycerides, we did not have a medication for triglycerides until very recently. And even now, it's not super effective. We did have a medication for LDL, statins. And so we focused on LDL. And that, I think, is a huge problem because we need our triglycerides to be low, um, and it's actually so easy to get your triglycerides down. I've had patients who have dropped their triglycerides 100 points in a month just by cutting out um, refined sugars and refined flours. It's incredible. It moves very fast, so it's very motivating. So for instance, some healthcare systems will literally say that triglycerides less than 500 are standard range. They probably need to be below, definitely below 100, but below 70 for optimal metabolic health. So people are walking around being told that their triglycerides are normal when they are like probably deep, deep in the spectrum of metabolic dysfunction. And some labs, which are a little bit more tight, will say less than 150 is fine and that's normal. But again, talk to Mark Hyman, any functional medicine doctor, 
if you look at the research deeply, less than 100 is going to be the lowest risk. And I shoot for less than 70. So that's just one example of how we help unpack some of these results. Um, It really pains me as a physician to think that people are walking out of the doctor's office thinking they have a clean bill of health when there's actually huge warning signs that they could act on very easily if they were just told, hey, this is a red flag. A second thing is how the the labs work together to tell you information. So you can do some interesting ratios like the triglyceride to HDL ratio, um, which is essentially this, this bad cholesterol that you can think of as sort of like related to excess glucose, um, turning to fat triglycerides over HDL, which is our quote unquote, good cholesterol shuttles, cholesterol back to the liver. You want a low ratio of these things. You want low triglycerides, high HDL, low ratio. And so this is something that no doctor is going to talk to their patient about. I did not learn it in medical school. I've only learned it since digging into the research after medical school, but this is actually a strong predictor of insulin sensitivity. And so even if for people who can't get a fasting insulin checked or don't get the levels panel, you can actually look at your triglyceride to HDL ratio, which almost everyone has on a standard lab panel and get a really good clue. I like to really push people to shoot for a ratio of one or less. So meaning that like if your triglycerides are 80, your HDL is 80. So that would be a very high HDL and a quite low triglycerides, or maybe your triglycerides are 65 and your HDL is 65. So that's a ratio of one. That is essentially a sign that you're probably very insulin sensitive, even if you don't have a fasting insulin test to to sort of verify that. Um, Rob Lustig in his book, Metabolical, talks about some different ranges. He recommends less than 1.5 in people of African-American descent and less than 2.5 in people of Caucasian descent. There's, there is some evidence that there's some race specificity um, or heritage specificity here. So that's something interesting there, but there will be different, but essentially it's, 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 it's trying to keep it low. Um, so those are some of the things you can unpack from your own lab panel, but I, I would really encourage people to print out their last results and that whatever health portal And we can maybe link to a blog post that we wrote about really getting into this deeply. Get a pencil and a piece of paper and a calculator and actually go through each test and see where you stand. You can do this yourself. And ideally, your doctor's on board. Um, But if they're not, you know, this is your body and you have to really be the CEO of your own health. And so um, there's a lot we can learn from our lab tests that give us a bigger picture about um, our metabolic health. And that can actually really feed into if you are going to use a continuous glucose monitor as part of your health journey can help create context for that. So for instance, let's say you get your lab tests back and your triglyceride to HDL ratio is really high. Let's say it's five or six. Your triglycerides are like 200 or 300, much higher than we want them. Um, or your fasting insulin is high, like 30. All of this is like, oh gosh, there's definitely some insulin resistance and metabolic dysfunction happening even if fasting glucose is still normal, right? Like even if that's, we're still in the compensation phase and fasting glucose hasn't risen yet, kind of ignore that. If that other stuff is happening, red flag. Well, now let's say you put a continuous glucose monitor on because you're quite insulin resistant. It's very possible that you might see much higher spikes than other people because you're more carb intolerant. Your body, even though it's compensating and your fasting glucose hasn't risen, your body's still not quite as good at processing the glucose. And so you might eat the Cheerios and someone with perfect insulin, insulin sensitivity might eat the Cheerios and you spike twice as high as them because you're carb intolerant. 
Well, that's helpful information. Maybe for a little while, you need to be doing more of like kind of a keto diet, really low glucose, really de-stress the system. And over time, as that insulin sensitivity improves and fasting insulin comes down, maybe you can incorporate more of those carbohydrates. And we actually saw this with one of our members, amazing woman. I reported, uh, I, I interviewed her for our Levels podcast, but um, her name's Betsy McLaughlin and she's incredible. She's the CEO of, she's been the CEO of multiple very successful publicly traded companies. And she just always struggled with weight and she ended up losing 80 pounds using levels after spending 40 years trying to lose weight. And the reason is because a lot of the foods she'd been told were healthy actually were spiking her through the roof. And when she started out with the CGM, her insulin was 30. And yet she'd never been told she was had a metabolic problem, even though if you look deeper, there was. So she essentially just eliminated all the foods that were spiking her above 120 or 130 and stuck with just the foods. So, and a lot of this were healthy foods she had to eliminate. She eliminated like chickpeas and even tomatoes. But after eight months, her insulin came down to five. And then she could eat those foods because she was much more carb tolerant. So that's how some of these other tests can actually build some context to enhance the glucose monitor journey. It's, it's not necessary to gain benefit from it, but it can give a little bit more color. Mm, that is so helpful and fascinating. Okay, I have one last question for you. Um, what's your general take on animal protein, saturated fat, as it pertains to insulin resistance? And I, I suppose I'm asking that as somewhat of a loaded question because obviously there's a lot. That kind of diet has been highly associated with keto. Um, I'm vegetarian keto, so you don't have to be, you don't have to consume bacon all day <laughs> to be keto. Um, but uh, but I'm, I'm curious just in terms of um, your approach to animal proteins. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm with you. I'm actually, I was plant-based, fully, fully vegan. I'm, I'm no longer fully vegan, I'm, um, but I was for a few years and was able to maintain ketosis. Very not difficult. It was very not difficult to do. When you know these principles, you can do it and get a super, you know, variety of the diet. And um, that worked for me for a while. It actually helped heal a lot of health issues that I dealt with after transitioning out of my surgical career. The surgical career was so demanding, so stressful, and the food was so bad in the hospitals that I had actually developed like several minor health issues. And I went sort of vegan, low-carb, keto, and it reversed those issues for me. And I don't think that's the right move for everyone. For me, that helped. Now I eat a little bit of eggs and, and fish and every once in a while, a little teeny bit of, of grass-fed meat. But really follow still like an 85% or more fully whole foods plant-based and am able to maintain ketosis by using these principles we've been talking about. Basically finding the foods and balancing them away on a vegan, on a plant-based diet that don't spike my glucose levels, which therefore allows me to keep my insulin low, which therefore allows me to make ketones because insulin blocks fat burning and um, fat burning generates ketones. So just, just very much on the same page of you there. But I think... The, the the question about saturated fat, you know, I think excess of any nutritional substrate is going to be a problem for the body, given the framework we kind of talked about, which is like excess gums up systems, essentially. There has been research showing that saturated fat um, in excess 
can cause some acute insulin resistance. And like some of these studies were done with palm oil and basically showed that if you like load someone up on this stuff, you can actually acutely generate some insulin resistance, which is kind of interesting. Um, but then, you know, you get the situation with people who are going carnivore or keto with very heavy animal products, a lot of saturated fat, and they're still maintaining really excellent insulin sensitivity. So I think the science is really not like settled on this. And I think it's very context dependent. You know, if you, if you have a lot of saturated fat along with a lot of insulin, so like essentially you're eating the standard American diet, it's kind of the have your cake and eat it too diet, right? Like I'm going to have oh yeah, I'm going to be keto and eat all this meat and cheese and eggs, but I'm also going to eat, you know, bread and tortillas. You, that does not work because what you're doing is you're putting all this substrate in the body that could be processed by one pathway, like a real, you know, go through the keto fat burning process. And then you're adding these, this other molecular information, glucose, carbs that raises your insulin, which then feeds back to that fat burning pathway and says, nope, we can't burn fat. So then you start storing stuff differently. So this is why basically keto with carbs is the standard American diet. So you need to, and that's an overgeneralization <laughs> that would probably, but, but if you're doing yeah. not a super clean, thoughtful keto, a lot of just, and then add in all this other stuff, you're creating a situation in the body where you're telling the body to store that differently. So you kind of got to separate, you've got to think about the hormones. Um, We've got to keep insulin low so we can actually process the fat effectively. So I think that level of nuance in research, I just don't think has fully happened yet. But I think that one of the, the key things I'm starting to realize after now being deep in the nutrition research for over 10 years is that there's many pathways to a good outcome. Um, but you have to be extremely thoughtful about context and hormones and about getting all of the right nutrients in the body that it needs. You can get, you know, omega-3 fats from animal products, from fish, from beef, etc. You can also get omega-3 from plants, from chia seeds and flax seeds and walnuts. People will argue to the end of time that, you know, it's not good to get them from a vegan diet because you have to convert it through three enzymes to get it to the form of omega-3s that's actually like used for structural uh, integrity of you know, cell membranes and as anti-inflammatory molecules. So ALA needs to be converted to EPA and DHA for it to be useful. But if you think about this in a little bit of a deeper way, let's think about those enzymes. How does ALA actually get converted to EPA and DHA? Well, each of those enzymes requires like many nutritional cofactors to function. Vitamin C, manganese, magnesium, um, B vitamins. So let's say you're on a vegan diet, but it's not super diverse and you're not getting enough micronutrients. You may be a very poor converter of ALA to EPA and DHA. But if you're really thoughtful and clued in about the nutritional biochemistry, you know, eat in a way to drive these pathways forward. So it's just not as simple as people yeah. think. And the, there's just so many beautiful, redundant pathways in the body to get to a similar place. And so that's why I think we can see people on a plant-based diet being very insulin sensitive. And we can see people on a keto diet with heavy animal products being very insulin sensitive. But the one thing we know for sure is that you cannot have your cake and eat it too. You can't pick the best of all of these. That's the most fun, you know, for you. Um, and it is very real that there are people who eat like whole foods, plant-based tons of carbs, fruit all day, 
and are very insulin sensitive, but they are not eating a lot of other things. So it's it's just all a big molecular. <laughs> yeah, um, no, it's it's thing. it's chemistry at the body level. It's it's hydrogens and carbons swapping each other out and things yeah. like that. And um, yeah, I think there's and, and it's such an exciting time. I mean, I've um, delved into a little bit of like Sinclair's work, for example, of like okay, there's this mTOR pathway that seems to be triggered by certain. Uh, aromatic amino acids that are associated with animal protein. Well, you know, you want a certain amount of mTOR because you want to be able to build muscle and stuff like that. But on the other hand, mTOR inhibits autophagy, mm-hmm. you know, this kind of cleaning out and recycling of old decrepit proteins, et cetera. And so, you know, this is like, and this is just the fascinating moment that we're in is that, you know, we get to, you know, <sighs> We get access to so to these fields of study that are emerging right now, and um, and that you know there is uh, that ability to take more agency into our own lives for really the first time, um, and like you say, be the CEO of our own healthcare, and you know uh, you know really that's attributable to you know, the work um, that you are doing with your team um, at levels, you know, yes, specifically with the CGM, but in all of these other ways too, um, with the testing and then honestly, just with all of the information and the data um, that you're being able to amass and and how you guys put together all of the information that you share freely uh, on levels on the blog, which I think is just really just highly stringent and, mm. and, and top of the game. So yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated as you can see with, uh, with this topic and others and just really grateful for you and your work and, and also just how you express it with such verve and grace and eloquence and excitement. I mean, I'm familiar with your work and I've heard you speak before and I've never heard you speak without vigor and vim and excitement and never feels phoned in. You always manage to to um, summon more than stamina to to deliver the message. So uh, I just love I just love what you're doing, oh. and um, I mean, yeah, just so happy to to be uh, to be in your orbit. Vice versa, and thank you for those kind words. Um, I think you summed it up so beautiful, beautifully. We're living in such an exciting time. I mean, this is endlessly fascinating. We've been able to see inside the universe of our bodies in the past five years, more than we ever have in human history. And it's like, it's just, it's, it's beautiful. It's awe-inspiring. It's awe-inspiring and getting on top of it and learning about it and optimizing it. What's the, what's the potential outcome there? Making the most of your one brief stint on this planet, you know, being able to have your brain function in a way that you can actually show up in the way that you want to be in the world to support your family, to support your loved ones, to be creatively generative, to have a good mood, you know, to, to be positive. And, you know, it's, so it's like, it's like the payoff of this beautiful world of science that's becoming so fortunately so accessible to people through so much amazing content like yours and David Sinclair and Andrew Huberman and Mark Hyman, all these people. It's like the reward is, is quite, quite great to get on top of this. So it's, you know, it's not about just like finding your optimal diet. It's not about, 
even being a certain weight. It's about, I think, really being able to, you know, let your cells work properly so that you can actually, you know, make the most of your time here. That's so brief and so fleeting. And, um, and to learn about that connection between, I mean, what is food really? What is eating? It's the connection between you and the cosmos. Like it's, it's your connection to the external world and it's you assimilating the external world into your form and function. That's, it's just all so awe-inspiring. And I think the more I've come to think about this and why I'm so passionate about levels, again, levels is a tiny piece of a much, much bigger picture. Um, but it's health is a matching problem. Our body's a machine with a lot of needs. We don't know what those needs are right now. And we have to match those needs to what we do, what we eat, what we choose to do, how we choose to live. And since our bodies change every single second, we're molecularly a different body every microsecond for the entire shapeshifters. I mean, year to year, our cellular mass is totally different. We've excreted and taken on new, we, we eat a metric ton of food per year, right? Like, so the more we can get better at matching what we're doing with what we need at a particular moment in time, the more we can be healthy. And that's where these tools, these empowerment tools like monitors can clarify the matching and see inside the black box. And so, yeah, I think the next five to 10 years are going to be fascinating with helping to pair choice with need on a a, a day-to-day level. And in doing so, really pull out the carpet from this narrative that like, we are the static object. We're a body that just is kind of, we have this one body in our lifetime. It couldn't be farther from the truth. We have billions of bodies in our lifetime. And, and that really tapping into that, like that philosophy is actually, I think, quite beautiful because we start to realize how connected we are with everything else, how dynamic we are and how we're part of this beautiful eternal process. Well, you're Um, taking me into my Buddhist roots here. You know that, um, that That's right. He, yeah. Yeah. Without a lot of, uh, without any letters at the end of his name, Siddhartha Gautama told us that we are uh, impermanent and there's no stable, reliable self. Um, that we are just in the river, moment to moment. And um, and I feel that if you are interested in the metaphysical or in the spiritual, then study the physical. Because that is where the foundational intelligence of the universe is patterned and mapped. (laughs) And this is why I'm so into it. Sometimes people ask me, like, why do you care about what's happening in the liver? And at the same time, read uh, the Tao Te Ching and the sutras (laughs) (laughs) and the Pali Canon and uh, and the Upanishads. And I said, well, because I'm interested uh, in the metaphysical and the metaphysical is patterned right here in the physical. Um, And uh, and that's what makes this whole journey ultimately so fascinating. So (laughs) anyways, I love that you took it there at the end because... uh, this is um, this is the the jag that I'm on right now. Mm. So thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Casey Means. To learn more about levels and to sign up for Casey's information-packed email missives go to levelshealth.com. If you enjoy this show, 
please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, you know how much effort we put into this show's creation, and we really do our best to keep advertisers to a minimum. This is not one of those shows, nor will it ever be one, where I spend the first 15 minutes on ads. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors, teachers, and thought leaders. You can check it all out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com trial. And of course, feel free to reach out to me anytime at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week in and week out, including Jake Laub, Megan Stone, Ruby Foster, Emma Fretz, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you. <laughs>